0: There's just so much more to hear.
1: Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Drive Live Talks Legal. NLT and Tim with you. 4001. The text number, unchanged. The app. Unchanged. You can text for free, and the phone number four two three ten ten. If you would like to ask Lud Miller a question directly uh, to uh, utilise the benefit of her legal experience, please do so. She is here from Lud Miller and uh, Plethka. Uh, Lud Miller and Plethka—that would be a good name for a company. You have them a little <laughs> bit better. Nice to see you. Good to be here. So look, we have three uh, fairly involved questions to start with. We will get to hopefully the two topics that we wanted to bring up with you today. Due diligence is one of them. The new mortgage law, to look in some depth at that. We'll try and get to those in the next ten minutes or so. But here's question one. We've talked a lot about the case uh, of the shipments going back to wherever they were going in the world. There was a collision in Pakistan, in Karachi, just in the uh, harbour there. 21 containers fell overboard. Obviously that's lots of people's goods that have been uh, affected. Richard is one of them. Moving back to the UK, wanted the goods to reach the UK first from his time here in Dubai. The goods were scheduled for shipping earlier. They were picked up on January the 21st, scheduled to go right after that. He and his family reached the UK on the 6th of March. On the 10th of March... He uh, rang the moving company. They claimed that he wanted them to store his items, which he didn't. He presented proof. They relented then. They offered compensation for goods purchased in the UK while he was waiting for the goods to be sent from Dubai. Uh, They promised they would ship as soon as possible. The goods were then loaded onto this vessel that crashed in Karachi. It was a collision between two ships. Twenty-one containers, as I said, fell into the sea. He's now found out, Richard, that his container is one of those affected. Now, as soon as the movers, he says, found out about the crash, they washed their hands of it, took back the offer of compensation. When he brought it up in an email, no response. Richard insured the value of the goods uh, for a quarter of what they were actually worth. That was a personal decision, thinking it's all going to be okay, we don't spend so much on insurance, realises that that was a mistake. However, his issue is that the goods weren't even meant to be on that ship. They were meant to be shipped far earlier. So from a legal perspective, Ludmilla, uh, how do you see the direction of this going?
2: Well, potentially there are two... Uh, two companies, uh, after against whom the listener Richard can seek compensation. One is the moving company, and then the other one is the insurance. Let's address the uh, the insurance um, angle uh, first because it's a little simpler. Uh, with regards to insurance, and this is why you have insurance, you take insurance, is that insurance normally provides you a more immediate compensation without having to file a formal court action, for example, and the uh, the necessity of of proving damages that you might have suffered. So this is the idea of insurance. And um, uh, in, in this case, Richard and his family obviously took a decision to insure to the value for less than the, the actual value of the package. So there, it's you. You kind of have to deal with the repercussions of that. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, definitely at least make a claim with your insurance company because one fourth is, is still one, is is one fourth more than than, than zero. Um, so make a claim with insurance company. But also while you're doing that, review the uh, um, the contract, the insurance contract, because there could be some hidden provisions in there that might be uh, uh, in your favor. So for example, let's say the insurance company, if, if there's some kind of a specific uh, calamity, maybe the insurance company Company is required to to offer a different um, a different type of compensation. I, I, you know, it's not likely because usually these contracts are drafted more in favor of the insurance providers than um, the clients. Uh, but certainly, before you um, before you kind of uh, you finalize that particular angle, review your rights because you might be entitled to more. Uh, so and and do try to receive that compensation before it 's too late because it sounds like you you 're in need of um, of some kind of funds um, so that 's the insurance angle and, and unfortunately you won 't be able to claim anything more because as you said you have uh, insured it for less value now you also have a claim against the uh, uh, the company and that 's the moving company and now what 's the claim there it 's the uh, ultimately it will be a matter of, of the contract and the underlying terms in the contract. And so it's hard for me to, to give you more specific advice without having seen the contract, but I would imagine, in, in most cases, it, you know, there, there was a breach of contract. They were supposed to provide you with uh, with a service, which obviously they failed to provide, so there is a breach of contract. Now, in the breach of contract, it's it's uh, the, the laws are around the world are more or less the same, and that's usually you're entitled to compensation. And then, depending on the jurisdiction, you may also be entitled to additional compensation by way of a penalty for example uh, or punitive damages. So if you bring the case in the UAE you there is no punitive damages and um, there is no uh, there is no sort of penalty for these kinds of things. It's really based more on actual damages so you would have to prove actual damages that you have suffered if there is a breach of contract and then claim that. Now there could be um, a, a clause in the agreement that limits the company's liability. So often we have seen clauses such as well you, our liability is limited to the amount of money we receive, for example, for you to ship the goods, let's say it was 5,000 dirhams or 5,000 euros. So um, these clauses are not uncommon. But they can be overruled, at least in this jurisdiction, because um, they could courts could look at them as, as what's called the liquidated damages, and courts here do have the authority to review the liquidated damages provision, where it's a certain amount of penalty that's sort of so-called agreed um, ahead of time. And courts can vary it, and usually they can vary it upwards. Um, so in other words, uh, if um, a company says, "I our liabilities only limited to, to the amount that you paid for our service, let's say $5,000, um, the courts can easily overrule that and actually grant you the, f- the compensation to the full extent of damages that you have suffered so in other words you would have to prepare yourself to uh, to file a court case unless the moving company agrees uh, to settle this amicably which sounds like they are struggling or at least you're struggling to convince them mm. uh, to uh, consider uh, but you would file a case against them uh, and that's a breach for a breach of contract and be prepared to provide all the receipts to substantiate your, uh, your damages. Uh, the fact that you're sleeping, you've been sleeping, you're whole family has been sleeping on the floor. It's a little less, uh, well, a little um, more difficult to to prove, um, if you move into a hotel, for example, the hotel bills or sort of any kind of temporary accommodation that you would have reasonably uh, rented uh, because of uh, their, their breach, i.e., the failure to deliver the uh, furniture and all the other belongings timely, that also can be thrown in as part of your uh, compensation or claim for uh, compensation for damages.
1: Okay, so keep the evidence of any uh, costs that you've incurred. But, but I mean, also by the same, uh, surely by definition, if you've insured. A value, a quarter of the value. The only uh, the compensation you would get is surely only a quarter of what everything was. That's worth. That's from the
2: insurance company, you see, but that's different. So that's from the insurance because that's why they said two separate angles: the insurance sure. company and the moving company are two separate legal entities. And and basically, in this case, Richard would have two different contracts: one against the insurance company, the other one against the the moving company. But you're right; there could be a provision with the moving company that says we are we do not insure or we do not um, we, we do not hold any responsibility or liability for uh, for your Goods and that it is your li- is your uh, obligation to ensure the the goods. And um, these kind of provisions can be overruled by courts, especially in, in circumstances such as this. Okay. Because u- usually the um, uh, the limitation liabilities for moving companies is is related more to well, let's say the the package got wet because uh, but it's not something that is so potentially, uh, it may actually be attributable to the company as as negligence because they, I mean, it sounds like he has plenty of evidence to show that the package didn't uh, or the um, container did not go out as soon as it was, when it was planned. Um, So there are enough, based on Richard's uh, description, there are enough damaging facts against the moving company where he could reasonably expect to receive compensation. But it sounds like the family is in the UK now, so it would be more difficult to file a a claim here. So therefore, also look at that contract because it may be that this particular insurance company also has jurisdiction Base in the UK, so you could uh, consider bringing a case in the UK, and um, the UK laws may be more more generous in terms of also, in addition to seeking compensation for the actual damages, you might be able to to claim punitive damages or some other penalty.
1: OK, so one question today, that's uh, Richard's issue at the moment. Another question?
2: Just quickly, before we
0: move on, we're going to talk about uh, looking at documents before you sign them. Particular pet hate of yours, Miller and mine. People who just sign contracts, don't think about it, don't read anything that they're doing, just think, oh, it'll be fine. But before we do that, we've been talking about Richard and his experience with the container. And one thing we did just mention there when we were chatting was the benefits of perhaps if... Richard has paid for any of these services the removal company by via his credit card, that could make a difference Yeah, this is
2: it's more of an outside the box uh, kind of thinking as we're discussing this, Richard, so or anyone else out there who may be listening to this and who is in this predicament if you paid for anything with a credit card, do check with your credit card because often credit cards do have additional insurance protection for goods and services that were paid with a credit card and very few people actually use uh, that benefit or even know about the benefit but certainly is something to investigate. Similarly, one of the other options, um, ideas I had is that, for example, if you have any other uh, homes in any other uh, parts of the world, then you may have home insurance there. Sometimes that home insurance will also cover your content uh, elsewhere. And I know this for a fact because we represent a number of clients and we deal with these kind of um, uh, insurance coverages that are much more expansive than you would expect for them to be. And it's often it's because, let's say, the same insurance company maybe offers you insurance for your car, for your it's what's called umbrella insurance for your car for your home and for your health insurance and so often they throw in additional benefits and and make the insurance coverage more global than you would normally expect so there's just some other ideas for you to investigate and whatever other perhaps plans you may have pension plans it depends on investments Uh, sometimes all those or memberships sometimes uh, they do also come with additional benefits uh, which many most of the time actually beneficiaries of these uh, membership cards don't even know about but certainly it's just an angle to explore.
1: Okay, because very often it is about reading the fine print, but who does? I mean, I don't know. It feel, It mm. seems as though so many of the legal issues that come in to you that you answer could very often be solved by us reading a contract before we sign it, And but but we just don't do it, do we?
2: Uh, surprisingly we do it a lot less than yeah. you would expect in, in particular in this jurisdiction
1: okay nLT what do you like? do you read contracts before you sign them? do you just blindly sign them thinking no I no f-? I
0: do the only yeah. sometimes on my phone maybe when there's an update of the software I do not always read those
2: but I will tell you just one case in point is that often because obviously we're lawyers and unfortunately whoever deals with us has to is a, is a, has to kind of brace themselves but often we get comments uh, from let's say real estate agents insurance providers because whenever we represent clients we raise these issues with, the, um, uh, with certain provisions in the contracts, and, and you would not believe how many times we're being told, oh, you're the only ones who are asking these kind of questions. You're the only ones sort of being so difficult. Everybody else basically signs with their eyes closed. So we get accused of this quite regularly.
1: That's uh, a sobering thought, isn't it? Let's talk about overtime payment. Somebody texted earlier. This is anonymous. It's uh, a blanket. How does overtime payment work here in the United Arab Emirates? Is there a way of answering that in in, in two a minutes? few bullet
2: points? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, extra maximum of extra two hours, extra I mean, two hours a day, right. and that's at twenty five percent. And then, if the hours fall in between nine p.m. and four a.m., it's mm-hmm. additional fifty percent. Okay. And then weekends are also at uh, 50% plus uh, another additional day as compensation.
1: Okay. What industry, though? Because I guess hospitality is treated slightly differently, isn't it?
2: What's interesting, not by law per se. So the law, the labor law applies to all except government, uh, certain government jobs or specific government jobs. uh, It applies equally to all, except I guess government and domestic workers as we know. Okay,
1: here's another question.
0: This one is another anonymous one, Lude Miller, it says, I work in a free zone company under my husband's visa. If I resign, am I still required to give the 30 days notice? They have issued a TCOM card, but things like visa, health insurance, etc. are all covered under my husband's company
2: yes so here what's important is to separate two legal principles one is related to immigration and that is visa and residency and everything that comes under that umbrella and the other one is employment law or labor law however uh, you, you, we know it here and so what the listener is asking there is less about the residence visa but rather employment law now under the UAE law the notice norm I guess a default notice um, is whatever is in the contract so I would urge the listener to uh, to review the Contract and it sounds like there is you know it's TCOM. Some some certain free zones have slightly different contracts Mm -hmm. for workers that are not subject to their uh, to their residence visa. Uh, And but I think more and more free zones are sort of uh, making the contract standard. So even if you didn't you don't remember signing a contract, you might be subject to that to that default or standard TCOM contract. And so you'd look to that to see what your notice period is. And so. The, the the general contract law is that you or you are bound to whatever it is you agreed on. So if there is a one month notice in the contract, it's irrespective that it has nothing to do the fact that, with the fact that you are not sponsored by that company. It's an unemployment law. You have to serve either serve the one month notice or you have to compensate the company for one month notice. However, if there is nothing in writing, uh, the usually the law puts the obligation on the company to give uh, the employee one month notice so the the minimum is the statutory minimum is one month but it's on the company uh, not on the employee so if there's no contract at all which i would mm-hmm. be surprised because there should be something uh, then you might have an argument that there is no notice obligation uh, but uh, the general principle is that there's a minimum one month uh, and that's in most contracts that what we find
1: Okay, let's do one more question before uh, we move on and it is wills is a will registered in Abu Dhabi valid in Dubai.
2: It can be. And so here we excluding the DIFC courts and and the DFC wills because this would be anything that's registered in, outside of the UAE would be subject to the to the Dubai courts. Uh, so Abu Dhabi will is very is, is very similar to a will registered in any other jurisdiction and I will tell you uh, and this is a bit of a misnomer. This is why the DIFC actually introduced this, the Wills and Probate Registry. And that's because re- registering a will in the UAE, for example, uh, it, it's, it, you don't really register a will. You basically just notarize uh, a document that looks like a will. So just because it has a Dubai Courts, for example, or Abu Dhabi Courts stamp does not make that will valid. All you're doing is you're testing to the authorities that yes, you came and you documented this particular, uh, particular, um, you know, will. But it does not make it by default valid. So therefore, once it's actually taken to court, it can it can be basically The, the heirs will have to uh, to um, enforce the will through the courts, and it may be that at that point in time, anyone else can come and challenge the will. Uh, so it's better to have something than nothing, uh, but in the event, so if you have a document that clearly shows the t- testator's uh, w- um, wishes, it's it's a good starting point, but just be mindful that just because it has a court stamp on it does not mean that it's going to be enforced as is. Uh, it's always open for um, to challenges but by heirs, not by the
1: courts. And it's an important point to remember that, isn't it, that wills are kind of subject to the vagaries of how families work. It may be that everything is harmonious and people are obviously... Uh, grieving and don't contest, but that isn't always the way it works.
2: Well, indeed, and I will tell you even that. So, for example, even if you have a DIFC will, and that is one jurisdiction where we've known that that has been designated to, in particular, register and enforce um, uh, wills, even there, the law clearly states that even though you have a will that's registered and it's a very specifically drafted will, it can be subject to challenge because if, ultimately, uh, the heirs come and then they say, well, this will in our jurisdiction The testator, for example, was a citizen of whatever country, and so therefore he's subject to the laws of that country. And under that country, this will is invalid. They can invalidate it even here Mm -hmm. on that basis.
1: Drive Live. Talks legal. She's here from Yamalava and Plethka answering your questions today. Uh, a couple more to do that have come in on the text line. I still want to get to Dubai's new mortgage law. Just to look very briefly at that, maybe we can uh, finish with an overview of that in a few minutes' time. What it actually plans to achieve uh, as well, Miller Here is a question. No name on this. My bag was stolen at the airport. Both the airlines' travel insurance claim they are not responsible as this was a theft that happened after the bag had been claimed from the carousel. The police have found the person. They've advised that he uh, threw the bag away. Uh, They obviously found that and him. Now what this person has to do is file a personal lawsuit against him in the courts... So that's the procedure. But any thoughts? On
2: well, I mean, based on on the phrasing of the listener's question, I mean, it sounds like he's received the right advice from the police so far. So, if it, if the bag had been picked up from the uh, carousel and and I mean, presumably based on the the, the phrasing, the question sounds like the, the person actually left the secured part of the airport. Yeah. Um, then I mean, how can you hold the airline responsible? It's sort of at that point that that's, you know, the airline has a responsibility to deliver your luggage to the point when you pick it up. Well, you've picked it up from there. So there, it's it's reasonable to expect that their obligation, the li- liability ends at that point. Now, with regards to the insurance company, I'm not sure the travel insurance. I, you know, travel insurance by definition, it should apply from the start and the end of the tra- of travel. So travel in this in in this particular case sounds to me that it should extend all the way until you actually reach home. So perhaps you have a better angle with the insurance company. And so um, once again, you need to review the, the insurance policy. But if it is a travel insurance uh, claim, then it sounds like it, you, it should at least cover uh, your belongings until you've arrived home because you're still traveling, right? Yeah. Unless it's only limited to air travel, yeah. which I, I'm, it doesn't sound reasonable, to be honest with you. So with insurance claims, I, I often find that you have a better angle because insurance, you, you often tend to be more conservative in terms of what they want to cover until you nudge them a little more. So if you do think that your insur- insurance uh, uh, policy should have covered this, then and if they don't respond to you, then you can always file a claim with the insurance um, uh, committee here, which and they are actually very very effective. Uh, we have filed a number of claims with them on behalf of our various clients, and they've always been very effective, very helpful. So that's one angle. And then the other angle, as the police said, well, so you always have now that now that they have found the person who actually stole the bag, you always have a claim against that bag uh, that person for the actual value of the bag. Now, obviously. I mean, I'm speculating here, but if it's a person that that's you know that. Resorted to something as stealing the bag, perhaps he or she does not have the funds. So even if you do have a, a court case, they don't really have funds to compensate you. So it's more of a of a personal decision. If you want to teach them a lesson, you can, but it's also going to be a very painful lesson for you. Um, so if you don't think the person has the funds to compensate you and pay you on the, on the court judgment, perhaps it's not really worth pursuing a court judgment, but um, depends on who that person is. That certainly is another angle to consider.
1: I mean, in this case, in this particular instance, if you have a police report, which... Clearly has been issued here. How much does the guilt that
2: has already? Yeah, the, oh, that's very helpful. So when you with bring up yes, well, well, yeah, uh, that uh, could it depends on the, on the insurance policy. You see, right. because yeah, but but with, uh, I mean, it's obviously very helpful because you don't have to prove to the insurance company that, um, that the bag, you know, that you, you didn't just mishandled the bag or the bag is in fact truly mi- uh, missing So, because that, that is an element you still need to prove to the insurance company so if you have a police report I mean that's the starting point uh, so uh, I, I'd say still the insurance the insurance angle is, is the best angle to, to work at this point
1: Okay, it's a question from Ahmed.
0: Yes, this one says, do we need a permit from the Ministry of Labour to work part-time alongside our main jobs? We have been talking about this a lot, Ludbella.
2: Right. Well, so the part-time part of, of the queer, in fact, the part-time refers to this part-time law that we uh, we discussed uh, recently. So that part-time law in particular applies to the Ministry of Labour. So, in fact, to, to get the permit from the, uh, for, for the part-time work, you have to apply to the Ministry of Labour. So, yes, by very definition of that, you would need the permit that we're talking about... required to be received by the Ministry of Labor. Now, if you want to work part-time without the permit, then that's, um, technically speaking, is, is against the law
0: we had sorry we, no, go on here, we sorry. had a question uh, about wills earlier and Abu Dhabi will being valid in Dubai this one says my wife and I live and work in Dubai we own a property in RAC can we set up a will in Dubai including the RAC property which will be recognized by the RAC government uh,
2: yes you can do that if you register your, uh, your will with the DIFC so okay. DIFC wasn't probate uh, specifically includes any properties that are included in the Emirate of Dubai and also now in the Emirate of Ras al Khaimah uh, as of about a year ago so the the DIFC courts and the wills and probate registry in particular has signed an MOU with the Iraq government where the um, the, the, the authorities in Iraq um, have agreed to recognise the validity of the wills registered in the DIFC. So that would be your best bet.
1: Okay. okay, here's an anonymous question. If you're a resident of an emirate other than Dubai, is there any provision by, uh, let me see, the employer uh, to deduct an amount equivalent to the housing fee for government? That's uh, an unusual question, but... Genuine question? Well,
2: I'm not sure I fully understand the the, so the the angle of the question, but generally speaking, the law, the employment law, uh, applies equally ac- across all emirates. So it doesn't matter which emirate you're in, as long as you're not in a free zone. But even in most of the free zones, it's, um, it's the same ministry or the same labor law uh, that applies across the board to all, I mean, except like the DFC, for example, and the DFC employees. Otherwise, it's the same, so it shouldn't be any different.
0: Okay, final question. I'm living in an apartment without rent as the landlord passed away 18 months ago. None of the checks could be in cashed. We've seen this problem come up before, Ludmilla. Mm. I'm following up with the landlord's son for a new title deed because obviously you need to give the checks to the new person. However, I now want to move out. How do I proceed with complying with relevant local laws? So this person's not looking to get away with 18 months of not paying. They're happy to do that. But now they want to leave without anyone in charge, it's difficult to get out of the contract. Uh,
2: sure, I mean if you want to do it uh, right, so then just make sure. But I mean, it's you have a legitimate reason not to necessarily pay the full amount of the rent to the landlords, the, the late landlords' son, because that son may be only one of the heirs. And so, until you actually have a court order showing who the the uh, the the new heir or the heirs are, or who or who the new owner of the property is, you're you're, you're correct in being uh, cautious about. Um, making the payment to just you know the one heir or a potential heir for example so um, that so that's from uh, I guess a legal standpoint however from a practical and more commercial standpoint uh, it's wise for you to accumulate a budget for that rent because there is the the ultimate heirs or whoever the heirs will ultimately be declared they will have a claim against you for the uh, for the rent for that period of time so just make sure to allocate a budget uh, or set aside that amount of money in your bank account so because when the time does come Come, and you can even you can even notify the, the son, for example, that that money has been set aside. And so, once you do have either the court order or uh, the evidence of the new title deal, you will pay that rent uh, to the legitimate or the ultimate uh, new owner. Um, so, I mean, I think that's the right thing to do because you are letting know the heirs, the potential heirs, that you are willing and able and have made provisions to set aside uh, those funds, but for legal purposes or for legal reasons, you are um, cautious about releasing that payment now uh, and then but you will so so that's on the I guess on the past rent now with regards to just the move out because obviously there may be a claim for a deposit well these sort of things until you have the new owner it becomes a little more uh, theoretical so once again uh, you know if you don't need anything from from the from the from the owner such as for example the NOC for a move out because some buildings do require that then you just move out and all you need to do is financially to allocate that money to pay in the future uh, and then perhaps you... And I would just recommend also that you document very clearly everything with mm. who you think the uh, the ultimate heirs might be so that it, it sounds like there isn't really... A uh, sort of a, a point in dispute. It's more about the logistics of who do you give money and when. Yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, very quickly, I know you can ask this quickly, we've got literally 10 seconds. Dawood's asking, I was asked recently if working for a company without visa or work permit is illegal, but I, uh, I might be wrong but I said it was and the company can be fined.
2: Indeed, yes, it is illegal and the company will be fined 50,000 dirhams per employee per uh, incident.
1: Alright, 100% Dawood. Thank but you the employee too,
2: the employee as well, anybody who's working is actually sanctioned a potential much more severely because they can be subject to deportation and okay. deportation is for
1: life all right Ludmilla Yamalova is from and Pletka as ever good to see you thank you
2: it's good to be here thank you there's just so much more to hear
1: download our podcasts at dubaii1038.com